Welcome to the Enable Me podcast series, where we bring together stroke survivors, health professionals and researchers providing you with practical advice. To enable you on your journey to reclaim your life after stroke. You can join the conversation at enableme.org.au. This series is presented by Australia's National Stroke Foundation and sponsored by Allegan. People often associate stroke with muscle weakness. After all, that's one of the fast signs. But after a stroke, you can sometimes find your muscles are too tight, leading to stiffness in your legs, arms and fingers. This is what is known as spasticity, and it can cause spasms, it can affect your limb positions, and it can be painful. But although spasticity is a problem, there are ways to deal with it. Today, we'll be speaking to stroke survivor Adrian O'Malley about his own experience living with and managing spasticity. We're also welcoming Catherine David, physiotherapist from the Stroke Foundation Stroke Line, to give some advice on getting treatment, including how to find a health professional who can help you. First, though, for an overview on what spasticity is and what treatments are available, we have Professor John Olver, who is Medical Director of Rehabilitation at the Epworth in Melbourne. He's a leading researcher on spasticity management, and he was the primary author for the International Consensus Statement for Using Botulinum Toxin for lower limb disorders in adults. Uh, welcome to our podcast, John. Thank you very much. The first question I really want to ask is, how common is the, is the problems with spasticity after stroke? Well, it's uh, difficult to say precisely because it varies depending on um, who's reporting it. But we think it's uh, in about 30% of stroke survivors uh, will experience spasticity at some time uh, in their recovery period. Okay. And do we know what causes it? Yes. I mean, all of our muscles in our body have a certain amount of tightness or tone and that's controlled from the brain. And after a stroke where there's some damage to the brain, that control is compromised. And therefore, the sequelae of that is that the muscles tend to tighten in certain patterns. Uh, and that's what we call spasticity. So it's tightness or increased tone due to the fact that the regulation from the brain, which usually keeps the tightness at a certain level, uh, has been disrupted. Okay, and is this related to, uh, I guess some people report this is when they're, they're feeling like their limb is too busy or they feel like their limb is giving up as a result of, of overwork. Is that, does that affect it at all? Uh, no, overwork usually doesn't affect it. The problem uh, really is that the limb is tight so it can be hard to move if you're able to move it and the muscles, even though they seem quite tight and strong, they can be actually quite weak. So it's not due to overwork, it is due to the, the way the tightness of muscle is set and controlled from the brain. At what stage then should people get treatment with it? If it's going to be so common, is it the sort of thing you get treatment for straight away or is there a certain level that you recommend people aim for? Uh, well, it, it's, it's an interesting condition because there's uh, some people where it can be quite apparent within uh, a, a few days or weeks of the stroke and there is another peak in, in tightness that can occur at about 18 months afterwards. So people should get treatment when the spasticity or the tightness of their arms and legs becomes such that they can't move them or it impairs movement. Uh, and so uh, it's a matter of if they lose function, uh, then they need um, some treatment. Okay. And so then if they do need treatment, what sort of what options are available for people? Well, the majority of people, the spasticity, as we call it, or increased tone, uh, can be uh, improved just by recovery, and certainly it can be improved by the use of uh, physiotherapy techniques, which include 
uh, stretching muscles, strengthening them, strengthening muscles that oppose the tight muscles, uh, and then retraining normal patterns of movement. Now, that probably takes care of about 90% of spasticity. Uh, where it becomes um, too severe and, and uh, physical techniques don't work, uh, then we've got uh, medication, uh, some of which we can take by mouth, and uh, now we've also got um, uh, injections such as botulinum toxin, of which one brand is commonly called Botox, uh, that can um, be injected into muscles to reduce the tightness. Okay, and this is something that you've done research on yourself, I understand. Uh, yes, we have a weekly clinic where um, we treat spasticity and uh, we use a, a lot of um, botulinum toxin in the clinic to uh, relax muscles, but that's only part of the treatment. The, the more significant part is the physiotherapy and or occupational therapy they get to stretch the muscles and uh, to strengthen the muscles uh, after we inject. Uh, so we we do this um, uh, at any time in a patient's recovery where the spasticity is starting to inhibit uh, movement of arms and legs. How does the botulinum toxin actually work then to help? Well, when um, you uh, have a thought that you want to move a limb, there's a series of uh, electrical impulses that goes down nerves from the brain, and then there is a chemical released. Uh, at the nerve ending as it enters the muscle and that chemical causes the muscle to contract and botulinum toxin basically blocks uh, that chemical from being released at the end of a nerve when it's activated and uh, spasticity is basically overactivity uh, of nerves so if you block a few of them uh, the nerves don't tighten as much well the nerves don't react as much and therefore the muscle doesn't tighten uh, as much and therefore you've reduced the spasticity. Okay, and you mentioned that you do other therapies along with that. Is that important for those um, physical therapies to be done when people are having the injections in order to get the most out of their their muscle function? Yes, absolutely. In fact, we won't do uh, injections without knowing that someone has access to the therapy afterwards. Botulinum toxin only lasts for about three months uh, and then it wears off. And so within that time, uh, that's the window of opportunity for the therapist to really work with the muscles, improve the range of movement around joints, and as I've said before, strengthen and stretch muscles uh, to enable the person to have more normal movement patterns. Given that it only lasts for three months, is there is there a limit to then the long-term use of it, like the, how long you can get benefit out of it, out of repeated use of it? Um, not that we know of at the present. Um, it's um, it's a, a medication that hasn't been used for all that long, but we believe you can keep on using it. The issue is that if you use it and you have a lot of therapy uh, and you inject people three or four times over a period of a year or so, and they return to the same spasticity that they had, then it's probably worthwhile not continuing and looking at other treatments. Uh, also, um, botulinum toxin is very expensive, and um, for certain indications, such as the arm in stroke, uh, it uh, is a PBS-listed drug, but only for four injections. So I think that like any treatment, if you trial it, 
and it works or it doesn't work, um, then you'd look for um, uh, some other treatment that might be more effective. Now, what other treatments are there available out there? You mentioned some other medications. Um, are these things like muscle relaxants? Yes, there's, there's uh, two um, often used muscle relaxants. One is called baclofen and the other is called dantrium or dantrolene sodium. Uh, one of these works um, at the spinal cord level and the other works uh, like uh, botulinum toxin at the muscle level. And they both... Um, try and reduce the tightness or tone in muscles. The problem with using oral tablets are that they're not as targeted as botulinum toxin where you're actually injecting an individual muscle. So you get more of a generalised reaction. And the other problem is that you can get some generalised side effects such as general weakness which may uh, then further compromise your ability to to move. Uh, So we tend to um, use these more general drugs uh, a little sparingly. They work in some people and in others the side effects uh, can be unacceptable and uh, we've got to look at other treatments. Apart from that, um, if we've used botulinum toxin it hasn't worked, uh, then there are surgical techniques to lengthen muscles and to release um, uh, joints where they've become contracted and sometimes we have to resort to uh, those treatments as well. I imagine that's uh, more of a last resort kind of scenario, is it? It is a last resort, but sometimes people have um, spasticity that's fairly widespread and uh, the surgery can mean that you've taken care of it with at least some at one area of the body, which means that you can then concentrate the oral treatments or the injections in another area. Um, so it's not always last resort, but usually we use the more conservative techniques first. But I emphasise that physiotherapy and natural recovery are the two major ways of uh, treating spasticity. And is there anything that you're personally researching at the moment that you think is interesting? Uh, Yes, well we've um, been looking at uh, outcome after um, injections because it's still difficult to know who will respond and who won't. And as part of that, uh, I was part of the development of a uh, stroke outcome scale and that asks about a lot of other things but also asks about tightness of muscles. And that's been endorsed by the World Stroke Organization and we're now trialling that on 300 patients at both the Alfred Hospital and Epworth to see what the uh, actual incidence of uh, tightness as reported by patients is six months after stroke. And we're also looking at uh, developing a new screening tool to help um, doctors work out uh, how to treat spasticity Uh, and uh, that will be published in the next few months. Okay, so that will be for what general practitioners, those sort of people? Uh, It'll be for general practitioners and anyone who's trying to work out um, how significant a person's spasticity is in terms of trying to determine how best to to treat it. Okay. Uh, the the, The scale's been developed. It's an international collaboration. And that'll be published in an American journal, and we hope that um, it uh, will be validated and uh, will will help the population it's designed for. Uh, one of the other research um, initiatives that we're uh, setting out on is to try and find out exactly how much of a problem spasticity is when people are getting back to walking or using their limbs. 
because it's not the only problem. Uh, weakness uh, in muscles can be an equally um, uh, devastating problem, and we're trying to work out the contribution of spasticity in long-term sort of physical outcomes after stroke. Best of luck with all of that. and um, Thank you. Thank you again for, for talking to us. That's a pleasure. Did you know you can customise the Enable Me website to suit all your viewing needs? You can choose large size fonts or different alignment of text on your screen, a high contrast screen so that different parts stand out, automatically underline the start and end of each sentence, read in easy English and many more options. Set up once and your personal settings are saved for all your future visits. Just click on the accessibility icon at the top of the screen at enableme.org.au. We're talking about spasticity after stroke. Someone who's experienced it and had to become an expert himself is our next guest, stroke survivor Adrian O'Malley. Adrian had his stroke at 34, but from the start, he's been determined not to let it stop him living his life. Adrian, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Chris, for having me. Uh, Look, we'll start where we always do and ask you to tell us your stroke story. My stroke story. um, I've almost been telling this story for 10 years now. Uh, My stroke was on the 6th of August 2006. um, And my stroke... I had stroke symptoms leading up to it, but not knowing anything about stroke, I was completely unaware. Um, And also, I was a ticking time bomb. The reason for my stroke was um, congenital heart disease that led to really high blood pressure. Um, I had a narrowing of the aorta, and so I presented to casualty. And here's a little plug for Know Your Numbers. I presented to casualty, and my blood pressure was 240 over 150. Things rapidly went downhill from there. Um, the next mornings, I was in a luckily very close to a hospital with a stroke unit, and um, I spent nine weeks there and had a heart operation and got out of hospital. And ten days later, became a dad, and that was a pretty good motivator to get well and get out of hospital. Um, and it's a pretty radical way to motivate yourself. But, Absolutely, um, yeah. But uh, it was. It was a really important thing for me to get as well as I could so that my wife didn't have two bums to wipe and two mouths to feed. And I was very happy that I got out of hospital in time to, for that, but because I had still dressings on my wound from my heart operation, I wasn't allowed to attend the birth. I had to stand outside like a, a 1950s dad pacing the room. I imagine you weren't allowed to smoke, though, in that circumstance. I didn't have a cigar, you know, a pocket full of cigars at the, in the in the waiting room, no. And then... Um, Look, that was that was very early days for me, and um, it was intensive outpatient rehabilitation after that, physiotherapy, occupational therapy, cardiac work as well. And one of my big goals when I when I first spoke to my best mate in hospital on on the second day that I was there was that I I wanted to be bushwalking. I love bushwalking. I wanted to be bushwalking within twelve months which was, I think, a bit of what you call a stretch goal because mm-hmm. I was completely hemiplegic on my right side at the time. And uh, 12 months to the day from discharge, I, I was starting a four-day bushwalk and I was back at work three, four days a week. So, And you know, that, that first 12 months was just appointments, 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 physio, as I say, physio and OT mainly, and neurology and cardiology. Right, so it sounds like a lot of hard work. How did um how did spasticity then affect this uh, this recovery? Um, I was lucky, Chris, because my my affected side is not my dominant side. I'm left-handed and I'm right side affected, so that was a bonus for me um, in terms of functionality. If it were the other way around, I imagine my circumstances would be a lot different. Um, early on, it was learning to adapt to new tools. Um, I can't cut my 
my meal with a with a knife like you, so it, it meant I had to go and get a different knife so I could learn how to cut a meal. Um, I've adapted my wardrobe so that I wear shirts with press studs. I wear nice Western shirts and flowery shirts with press studs so I don't have to do up buttons. Um, it was it was just for me uh, it's it's as much a physical exercise as a thinking exercise. You have to think about um, deal with the consequences of of what what the effects of, of the stroke are and, and what spasticity means. So um, you try and make your life easier by adapting in, in ways around it, I guess. Okay. Um, but as well as adapting, I suppose, you've had some treatment for it, I understand. Lots and lots of treatment, yeah. Um, it was interesting. I had a look at a photo um, before the podcast today. Um, and it was the 1st of July 2009. I was sitting in the departure lounge of Sydney, about to head to Melbourne. It was a photo of my hand. Um, it was increasingly getting tighter. And this was about three years after my stroke. And I'd, I'd found out via a, a good friend who's a neurologist that um, Botox had been listed for upper limb spasticity on the PBS. So he had a colleague in Melbourne and, and I was off to Melbourne to go and have Botox injections and I look at that photo of almost seven years ago now and, and my hand was was um, quite tight. The tone it was to the point where it was a knuckle at times and a, and a claw hand or a fist is not a particularly useful hand so I was motivated to do as much as I could but I couldn't overcome um, the tone in terms of stretching and doing exercises um, the the tone was greater than the stretching, I guess. And um, we've heard from Professor John Oliver that it's important to then, you know, if you're having those botulinum toxin injections, then to, to do some exercises along with them to to um, make the most of it. And this is true. And and uh, my work for many years post stroke was horticulture, so I was doing physical job using my hands, and and that was my rehabilitation, I guess, was. Uh, having to use my hands to do my job, um, and it was it was good exercise, and it was it was functional tasks that helped me in day to day stuff. I guess OTs and physios would would think that it's an unusual way of doing it, but but I had to do it for work, so yeah. I used my hands as best I could. Well, we've certainly heard, uh, I guess, previously that yeah, the importance of doing uh, activities and and tasks that are valuable and meaningful to you. So you know that makes a lot of sense from from that point of view. Uh, has this has all this worked for you? Have you you managed to uh, get a lot of improvement over the last few years? My goals right from the start um, were around maintenance. It was around keeping what I had um, and not letting it get worse mm-hmm. as what I knew over time was that the tone would get worse. And, and, and reflecting back on that photo, my hand is was worse then than it is now. Um, the functionality remains the same. Well, no, that's not true. I sleep with a splint. I wear a glove every day or six days a week that's that's tight, um, an orthotic splint, I guess you'd call it, that I wear every day. And and I have Botox injections. And, and if I think back to my original goals, which were to keep maintain what I had, um, that's, that's achieved that. I didn't want to play concert piano or anything like that. I wanted to do simple tasks of daily living and in, in terms of heading down to Melbourne, sitting in that departure lounge at Sydney thinking about going to Melbourne to have um, Botox injections, I I was asked by the team that was going to do it and this was lovely because throughout your 
well, in, in my experience of rehabilitation post-stroke, very often, literally and figuratively, you're you're a passenger. You get you get pushed around at times in wheelchairs because you can't walk. You uh, you have to follow instructions. And in in this instance, um, the rehab team down there that were going to inject me asked me for three simple functional goals. And that was a lovely experience. And I couldn't give them an answer straight away because I'd never been able to participate in my rehabilitation in a way like that before. And and I reflected on that and, and got back to them and said, three simple tasks. And, and OTs, I guess, if they're listening, these they, these are activities of daily living, really. And my goals were important to me and perhaps set low so that anything over and above those goals was a bonus, which sets up your mental health, what's going on between your ears as well as what's going on in your hand. And the three goals were to turn on a tap at home that I have to deal with every day and to turn a door handle that I have to deal with every day. And at that stage... 2009, Eve was three, and we, that's my daughter, and we were walking home from from afternoon um, from daycare, and it was to hold her hand when we were crossing the road, and that's a very simple but very pleasurable thing to do is to hold hands with your child, and that, they were my three goals, and they were all achievable. With um with what you're saying, then it's been as you said, it's been um maintaining this uh this function, this level of function for you. Has that been difficult over over so many years then to to keep that up, particularly with the limitations on on I guess what some of these therapies their availability and, and what you can what they can achieve. Given the choice, I would have Botox, Dysport, botulinum injections every three to four months for the rest of my life. But well, at least for the rest of my working life, um, that would be a nice thing. Um, unfortunately, that's not currently available. Uh, and I think in terms of, of the way uh, Botox injections are administered at this stage, uh, my mate rang me and said, Botox has been li- listed on the PBS for four courses for upper limb spasticity. That, that's medical talk for you get four bites of the cherry. And I think that's a really cruel way to administer it because it might take three of those four injections to work out what muscles to inject and how much to inject you um, by which stage you've you've got one left and and you've eaten all the cake and that's got to last you the rest of your life. Botox is 100% reversible unfortunately it wears off and so those four courses I think are cruel and that it lines you up for failure. I, I've been fortunate to have a continuing relationship with that team in Melbourne. Um, I don't know that that's an opportunity that everybody gets to continue to be treated with Botox. And if um, if they changed how they listed on the PBS, that would make a big difference over the working life of people who have strokes below the age of 65. That's um, that's something sound like something you're fairly passionate about there. Um, what other sort of messages would you have for other stroke survivors or other advice? In terms of um, going down the path of Botox, my, my suggestion would be have, have one relationship with one treating doctor over a long period of time because it's going to take time to get it right and to work out what muscles to inject and, and how much to inject them. And it's it's as the doctor who injects me says, and he's been doing it for a long time, it's an inexact science because in those injections over the years that I've had them, sometimes you get a silver bullet. You get really uh, an efficacious, a really, really good round of injections and everything's sweet and it lasts in some instances up to 14 or 15 weeks, which is great. And and other times I've had Botox wear off after eight weeks. So it's not, not going to be the same 
on every occasion. But if you take one of those variables out, which is always seeing the same doctor over a, a long period of time, I'd, I'd absolutely recommend that because they'll get to know you uh, inside and out. Well, um, thank you very much for sharing your um, your experience with us, Adrian, and um, best of luck with uh, yeah with maintaining and achieving your goals. Thanks very much, Chris. Setting goals is crucial to stroke recovery. Goals can be as simple as walking to the letterbox to check the mail or bigger goals like getting back to work. Enable Me has a unique tool where you and your carer or family can plan what you want to achieve, track how you are progressing and celebrate your successes. You can also connect with other people who set goals similar to yours and challenge or inspire each other. You can even set up a blog to write down how you are feeling and share your own story. And don't forget, our professionals from Stroke Client can help with personalized and confidential advice to help you grow stronger after stroke. Visit enableme.org.au. All right, so we've heard a lot about the impacts of spasticity and how there are many options for treating it. But where do you start if you're experiencing spasticity? And to give us some advice, we have with us Catherine David, a physiotherapist and one of the health professionals behind the Stroke Foundation's Stroke Line. Thank you for joining us, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I suppose uh, the question I really want to know is what are, you, what are your top tips? What do you advise for someone who is experiencing spasticity? I think probably my first tip would be, um, and certainly this comes as no surprise from a physio, uh, my first tip would be keep active as, as much as possible and move regularly. Spasticity will tend to get worse when people aren't moving much, unfortunately. And what we see is that when people become inactive, a number of other problems can occur, which can make the spasticity worse. So we can see that people can become weak in other muscles and, um, and that can certainly impact on, on the severity of their spasticity. And unfortunately for some people, uh, if they don't move much at all, and particularly in certain joints, if they're not moved much, we can see that contractures can develop over time and a, a, a contraction occurs when muscles are, um, are stuck in one position for a, for a period of time and the muscles basically shorten in that position. So a contracture is different to spasticity, is it? It is, yeah. So a contracture is, is basically, um, I, I guess, a, a common problem that we would see as a result of, of severe spasticity. Right, Okay. My second tip would be to be linked in with some therapy. Um, this might be physiotherapy, it may be occupational therapy. And really the role of the therapist in that circumstance is to work out how people can stay active and, and work with someone to, to keep them as active and keep them moving as much as possible. Um, they can also look at ways to reduce the impact of spasticity and they can try and address any secondary problems that might um, come about from spasticity. The other thing that therapists can do is work out whether or not there might be a role for medical management. So very often people might be referred on to um, medical practitioners to look at particular medical managements alongside the therapy. These are things like your botulinum toxin and and uh, muscle relaxants or those sort of things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it really that I think leads on to my third tip is for people, particularly when they have more severe spasticity, um, a referral to a, a medical practitioner might be indicated. So that could be a neurologist. Mm -hmm. It could be a rehab specialist. So a doctor that specialises in rehab, or it could be to a spasticity clinic, um, okay. which is basically a clinic that has a number of health professionals that can um, specifically 
assess someone for their, their spasticity and work out best best management. Um, very often you might need your GP to make the referral to, to either these doctors or to a spasticity clinic. Um, and yeah, particularly in, in some cases, botulinum toxin might be mm-hmm. recommended. I think it's really important for people if they do go on to have medical management like botulinum toxin, that they do also have therapy in combination with those medical managements. And that means that we can get the best outcome from from the medical management. Okay. Uh, now, you mentioned the spasticity clinics. Are there many of them around Australia? Yeah. So, a lot of um, hospital, particularly the larger hospitals, will have a spasticity clinic. Um, sometimes there are, there are sort of lengthy waiting lists and they are often more so for people who have more severe spasticity that is really affecting their function a lot. Generally speaking, a GP would need to make a referral to the spasticity clinic. Okay. Now, in terms of the uh, the physical therapies that you mentioned, like with the um, the physios and the OTs, what kind of things can you be a bit more specific about some of those kind of um, therapies that that people can be given? Mm. There's certainly a number of different physical therapies that that are available. The types of physical therapies will depend quite a lot on what sort of um, uh, difficulties people are having due to their spasticity and how severe the spasticity is. Um, but also what area of the body is affected. So mm-hmm. quite op- often it will be the muscles around the elbow or the hand or also the foot. Um, but look, generally speaking, a physio or an occupational therapist might work with someone to find ways for someone to stay as active as possible so they don't develop secondary problems from the spasticity. They'll also look at particular exercises that they can do to improve the quality of movement and the strength of the muscles around the affected joints. Um, Exercises might also focus on improving strength in other areas like the trunk, for instance, um, to try and make sure that people have a stable base to, to work off. So often if someone has spasticity in an arm or a leg, if we can improve um, stability around the trunk, so improve someone's core stability, that can lessen the impact of, of, of spasticity in the, the arm or the leg. Um, I think the, the other thing that physios or occupational therapists would, would often look at is whether or not there's a role for electrical stimulation. Um, so that's basically used to stimulate muscles around the area uh, of spasticity. Okay, so it's the physios who would actually apply those kind of devices? Yeah, either physios or occupational therapists can work with people to, to use those devices and set up a program. Right. Now, um, a lot of people do seem to, not, not many people necessarily have a physio that's working with them at the moment. And uh, sometimes people have trouble finding a physio or an OT. So how, how do they do that? How do they get a referral? How do they find someone to help them manage their spasticity? Mm. So people can either see a physio through the public health system and very often seeing a, a physio through the public health st- system will be at no cost or it might just be at a small, small cost. Otherwise, people can see someone privately as well, see a private physio. If someone wants to see a physio through the public health system, quite often you'll need a referral from the GP. So that would be my advice is to have a chat to the GP about making a referral. And physios through the public system are often available in community centres or in hospital 
outpatient departments. And it's important that the GP makes the referral to a physio who is specialised in neurological treatment. So someone who's really experienced in dealing with someone with um, with stroke and has, has experience with dealing with people with spasticity. The other option, as I mentioned earlier, is, is to see someone privately. Um, so if people want to find a private physio, they can actually jump on board the Australian Physiotherapy Association website. And on there, they've actually got to find a physio uh, function. So a button that you can click on to find a physio that works in your local area. And they can search for a physio that specialises in neurological rehab. So again, someone who is experienced in in that area. There is also the availability of Medicare rebates for people that might want to see a private physio. Mm -hmm. So if they want to access Medicare rebates to see a private physio, they'd need to have a chat with their GP and the GP can make the referral and fill out the the paperwork to access those Medicare rebates. Okay, is there a specific like chronic management plan or something they need to have for that? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what it's called. So it's usually referred to as a chronic disease management plan. Right. And you deal with some name similar, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, so I'd recommend people to have a chat to their doctor about being put on one of those plans to access the Medicare rebates. Okay. Well, it sounds like there's quite a few options there then for people to get some help. Well, thank you very much, Catherine. Now, uh, you can speak to health professionals like Catherine on the Stroke Foundation Stroke Line. That's 1-800-787-653 or 1-800-STROKE, which is a bit easy to remember, I think. At Allergan, we know every stroke is different and so is every recovery. After stroke, many people have muscle weakness and loss of movement, but you might also be experiencing tight muscles or stiffness in your arms, fingers or legs. It's called spasticity. You might have muscle spasms or uncontrollable jerky movements in your arms or legs, changes in your posture or unusual limb positions, and it can cause pain. It can be treated though. Physiotherapy or occupational therapy can help you adapt and improve your movement. There are other possibilities too, such as injections with botulinum toxin type A, electrical stimulation of the muscles, electromyograph or EMG biofeedback and muscle relaxing medication. What is important is to start your rehabilitation as soon as possible after a stroke and to discuss your goals and progress with your rehabilitation team at every stage. Allegan is proud to bring you this Enable Me podcast. Uh, thanks again to Catherine and to our other guests, Professor John Oliver and Adrian O'Malley. And next month, we have the topic that I promised last time, which is fatigue. We'll talk about knowing your limits and the emerging evidence-based techniques to manage it. That's all for today's Enable Me podcast. You can find out more on this topic and continue the conversation or listen to other podcasts in the series at our website, enableme.org.au. It's free to sign up and you can talk with thousands of other stroke survivors, carers and supporters. We also have health professionals from StrokeLine who can answer your questions and give evidence-based advice. The advice given here is general in nature and you should discuss your own personal needs and circumstances with your health professional. If you would like to suggest a topic or provide feedback, contact us via the website enableme.org.au. Keep
The music in this podcast is Signs by Stroke Survivor Antonio Ianella and his band, The Lion Tamers. It was recorded at Antonio Studio, which you can find out more about at www.studio499. That's F-O-U-R-99.org.au. This Enable Me podcast series is produced by the National Stroke Foundation in Australia with the support of Allegan.